Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Robert Smalls. This was a bloke who uh, escaped slavery by nicking a warship from the Confederates during the American Civil War. Certainly one way to get it done. Uh, he went on to actually fight for the Union after this and, and, and later on in life ended up uh, in in the US uh, Congress as a, as a member of the House of Representatives there. Uh, this bloke got a lot of stuff done. I can tell you that. I can tell you that. He, uh, he actually he had a pretty strong influence on the way that some stuff shook out during the American Civil War. Uh, he helped to persuade the, uh, Lincoln, President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, uh, to enlist uh, uh, black soldiers uh, to fight for the Union uh, throughout, the, throughout the Civil War. And uh, he didn't stop after the Union either. He After the war, sorry, uh, finished. He, he he moved into politics, as I say, in the Reconstruction era, um, and uh, he worked in the, the South Carolina Congress and the, the, the US Congress as well uh, to, you know, on stuff like establishing accessible education systems and uh, all, all sorts of really interesting stuff we're going to get into. So, based on all that, based on all that, you would think that he was a pretty excellent bloke based on all the stuff that I've told you. You would think that he is an excellent bloke, but... Was he really all that he's cracked up to be? Yes, he was. He was. He was, by all accounts, just a top-shelf gent, to be perfectly honest with you, mate. So uh, let's get into it and have a chat about uh, Robert Smalls and and find out just, you know, how a young boy born into slavery managed to become a war hero and a congressman because it is a, it's a bloody interesting story, I can tell you that. So... <clears throat> We're going all the way back to 1839 here on the 5th of April when Robert Smalls uh, is born to a woman named Lydia Polite uh, in a town called Beaufort in South Carolina. Now, this poor lady, Lydia, uh, she's enslaved by a bloke named Henry McKee, who in all probability was uh, our mate Smalls' father, right? So she was a house slave rather than a field slave. And, and perhaps due to his parentage, young Smalls uh, was actually treated with a, a fair... He got a fair bit of preferential treatment, a fair bit of favouritism, this uh, this young kid did, even as a slave. And uh, his old lady, quite interestingly, wasn't too keen on, on raising a spoiled kid. And so she actually requested... She actually insisted that her son go out and work in the fields uh, to, to see what life was like for the, for the slaves out there. You know, it was so he wouldn't get the wrong idea about how bad most slaves had it. He, you know, he'd seen getting whipped and treated horribly and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so he grew up with, a, you know, an understanding of the plight of enslaved people rather than living uh, in the house there. So, uh, you know, pretty far-sighted stuff from mum there, you'd have to say. And uh, you'd also have to say it had some far-reaching consequences too uh, on, on this young bloke, Robert Smalls, uh, you know, a, as a kid. Anyway, at the age of 12, he actually leaves uh, he, he leaves Beaufort and he's sent off to Charleston to work as a, as a labourer. He's hired out by McKee and uh, he worked uh, doing all sorts of stuff, actually. He worked in a hotel, he worked at a, as a lamplighter. But uh, as a teenager, he settled into working at the docks, at the docks there in Charleston. Obviously, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of maritime trade and, and uh, you know, the maritime industry pretty big in, in Charleston there. A lot of ports and, and docks and, and whatever else there like that. And he loved it. He loved working there. He's a big fan of the maritime trade, big fan of the sea. And so over the years, he, he you know, worked as a stevedore, he worked as a, a sailmaker and a rigger, and then eventually became a pilot. So, well, actually, not quite. On a technical level, despite being a very, very accomplished pilot, he wasn't given the title, uh, you know, because of his, his race and his position as a slave there. He was instead known as a wheelman. 
But, but that didn't take anything uh, from, away from his, his skills, uh, you know, at the helm. Young Smalls, he had a remarkable talent, and he picked up a lot of work sailing about in the Charleston Harbour, uh, you know, as a pilot, even just as, as a teenager, right? Even as, a, as, an, as an adolescent. Anyway, all up, things are going about just as well as you could hope for this young fella. At the age of 17, he even gets married. He shacks up with a woman named Hannah Jones. Uh, she was 22 and already had a couple of kids, but all the same, she and Smalls were married on the 24th of December, 1856, and they had a kid together just over a year later in uh, February, 1858. So, so, between his marriage uh, and the beginning of the American Civil War in, uh, in 1861, uh, Smalls is actually he's working as hard as he can here to save up enough uh, to, to buy his, uh, you know, his kids' freedom. Uh, he needs $800 to do this, which is a fair whack of cash. I can tell you, it's a lot of cheddar. It's equivalent to well over 20 grand today. So it's unsurprising that poor old Smalls, uh, as a slave, is having a tricky time you know, getting the cash together because, of course, uh, you know, all the wages he's earning are, are, are being, more or less all the wages he's earning are being taken by his master, McKee. Things change, however, when the Civil War begins. When the Civil War begins in 1861 uh, with the attack on Fort Sumter there in in South Carolina, Smalls is assigned to pilot a ship called the CSS Planter, a medium-sized, like a steamboat that uh, that worked as a a troop transport and a gunboat and, you know, various other... It was sort of, you know, pressed into service for the Confederate Army there, or the Confederate Navy, I should say. So between late 1861 and April 1862, Smalls is, is cutting about in this ship in the service of the Confederates. He's following his orders. He's doing stuff like moving troops around, delivering messages, laying mines in the rivers and and, and that sort of thing as well. So all sorts of stuff like that, right? So he does all this, no worries. He's cruising around the rivers, the coastlines of South Carolina and Georgia as well, doing what he's told and generally, uh, you know, generally just, again, doing his job here. However, however, he's got a couple of pots on the boil there that, uh, that people don't know about at this stage. The Union has blockaded the outer harbour of Charleston at this point, right? So uh, there's a very limited area that uh, that Smalls can sail in without running into uh, you know into trouble with the uh, with the Union uh, Navy that's uh, that's out as I say on the outer harbour there. So Smalls, who is very good at his job, very very good at his job as well, very gifted pilot there, and uh, and also you know very much seemed to enjoy the work he was uh, he was doing. He was he was given a fair bit of free reign by the owner of the planter and its uh, you know the, the people in charge of it there, the officers and whatever else. So he's generally you know he's generally sort of left to his own devices to uh, to uh, complete the assignments that he's given. And this whole situation, you know, his his attitude as as a reliable and and very satisfied or you know happy pilot there, even as a slave, this was all a ruse. Or he, he's lent in knowing that he's earned the trust of many of the people that have power over him. Smalls has has cooked up a plan and has very much lent into this role as someone who you know could be trusted there because he has got, as I say, he's got a pot on the boil and he's got uh, he, he's got an escape plan. He's got an escape plan that he's putting into action uh, as early as April 1862. He's he started to figure out the, the how he's going to secure his freedom here. And as I say, in April 1862, he starts to put this plan into action and he gathers together all of the slaves on the crew of the plant. Well, actually, not all of them. Uh, there was uh, there were one of the slaves. Uh, he he cuts out of the meetings because he doesn't actually trust him. He thinks he's going to go and dob him into the uh, uh, to, you know to the to the people in charge there. Uh, anyway, yeah. So he gets these other slaves together and he says, "Listen here, fellas. Bloody rubbish gig we got to get. We got here aboard this ship. You know, knocking about in this boat. But, you know, bugger this for a joke. I'm, I'm I'm bloody tired of it." And the other slaves go, "Mate, what are you on about? Yeah, you know, we don't have a bloody choice, do we? We're slaves. What do we got? We got to do what we're told to do." And Small says, "No, no, 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 mate. Listen to this." I reckon we try to escape, sort out a way to nick this ship, and we sail up north to the Union. Bloody brilliant, right? And they all go, oh, you know, all right, sounds pretty good, rubbo old mate, but uh, how are we, we going to do it? What's the plan here, big fella? And he says, mate, 
leave it to me. Don't even worry about it. I've got it all sorted out. Just keep on going as normal. And soon enough, we'll be out of here. Easy game. Leave it to me. And so most of the crew is in readiness. They make some preparations for this for this daring escape that, uh, that Smalls has got planned. And on the 12th of May, 1862... The moment finally arrives. Smalls is uh, is ordered to uh, to pilot the planter, the boat here, uh, to Coles Island, which is southwest of Charleston, where they pick up four cannons and over a hundred kilos of ammunition, as well as some other supplies there. So the boat is, uh, you know, it's filled full of all this stuff. They have to then transport back to Charleston. They head back, where the planter's captain, who is a bloke named Charles C. J. Relia. He heads ashore with the other officers and leaves the crew aboard for the night. Now, this wasn't unusual. Apparently, leaving the you know, leaving the 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 uh, the rest of the crew, the slaves there on the boat without anyone uh, you know watching, overseeing what they're doing there. Apparently, so when when they were court-martialed, when, when the officers and this bloke Relia were court-martialed for what happens next, uh, they all claimed they did this almost all the time. Uh, but this time it, it backfired massively on these blokes, uh, as we'll discuss right now, because Smalls and the other slaves, right, they have organised for their families to be ready and waiting for a quick getaway at another wharf after they got back from Coles Island, knowing that the officers would leave the ship for the night under the care of these slaves. And they know what's going to happen, and so they've planned to make their getaway at this opportune moment. So... At about three o'clock in the morning, on the uh, uh, this is on the thirteenth of May. Now we've we've gone past midnight. Smalls gets up, he dresses himself in the captain's uniform, and plops a great big bloody straw hat on his head, just like Relia usually wears, and he heads up to the helm. He takes the planter past the southern wharf where the, the crew's family ready and waiting. They were prepared, ready to go. They all scamper aboard just like that. They jump on board, and Smalls then brazenly sails the ship out of the Charleston Harbour. He sails it past no fewer than five Confederate harbour forts, right? Giving the correct signals every time, you know, we're off on this business, whatever else they're like that. And no one on any of the forts suspects a thing because he stood there wearing the captain's uniform with his hat on his head like the captain used to wear. And he's, you know, he's he's mimicking the way the captain used to ha- behave and, and drive the ship and whatever else. Drive the ship? Sail the ship? I don't know. Whatever he's doing, he's doing it like this bloke really would have done. And it fools everyone, right? The planter, after having passed these five checkpoints, finally approaches Fort Sumter, which was guarding the entrance to the Charleston Harbour. And once again, he supplies the correct signals to pass. But the thing here, right, is after he's passed the fort, of course, he gets past the fort, no worries. They, they see the signals, they're like, yep, off you go, no worries at all. The problem is now, do you know what he does? Obviously, he's got nowhere to sail except for straight into towards the Union blockade. So all of a sudden, the people on Fort Sumter, the alarm is raised, going, look at this, we've got a ship, we've got a, we've got a Confederate ship, a boat sailing straight out toward these Union ships. This is uh, you know, this is all too late. So they scramble to you know get the guns ready and start to shoot at this, uh, this ship. Obviously, something's going wrong, but it's too late. The alarm is not raised fast enough, and by the time the Confederates realise what's happening, the planter is out of range of the guns at Fort Sumter. But before we get carried away, before we get too carried away, you know, we're not flush with success just yet, because obviously, you know, well done, Robert Smalls. He's managed to escape the uh, the, grips, the grip of the Confederates here. He's managed to, uh, you know, sail past the range of their guns. But let's not forget the position he's in. Let's not, let's not, let's remember what he's doing. Smalls is sailing a Confederate gunboat straight towards a Union blockade. And for that reason, right, you can the, the Union ships who realise what's going on here, they are getting ready for action because they don't know what's happening here with this gunboat coming towards them. They're getting ready to, you know, man the guns and, and whatever else, get ready for a potential attack from this Confederate gunboat that's bearing down on them. But 
Very cleverly, of course, very cleverly, Robert Smalls, he's got this angle covered as well. He's got his wife to bring aboard a great big bed sheet, an enormous big white bed sheet. Well, white is a bit generous, apparently. By, by contemporary accounts, the... Uh, you know, it was it was it was quite a dirty and grubby bedsheet. It wasn't quite white, but all the same, uh, Smalls is organised for this to be brought uh, brought on board, and so he strikes the Confederate colours, and he runs up right this the the closest approximation to a white flag that they have. This white bedsheet is hoisted up, and they they all all these uh, you know these poor people on the uh, on the planter there they're all hoping that this is going to be enough to stop the Union boats from firing on them. Luckily, luckily, it was enough. And the Union ships, they were getting their guns ready to fire on the poaching, uh, approaching steamer until someone pointed to the bed sheet. Again, wasn't exactly, you know, saying, is that a look at the off white, look at that bone coloured, the cream coloured flag over there. Not quite white, it was a bit grubby. Uh, and and they, they recognise it as a sign of surrender and so they hold their fire. And bloody good thing they do too, because as the planter approaches, Old mate Smalls, he steps out to greet the Union crew. He takes off his, his straw hat and reveals himself and says, and this is a direct quote, he says, Good morning, sir. I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. So the Union sailors, they can't believe their eyes. One of the captains, uh, he actually boards the planet to, feels, you know, to, to figure out what's going on. He meets Smalls and questions him and says, you know, what the bloody hell has happened here, mate? How have you nicked a Confederate warship? You got all these cannons on board ready to give to us. But, you know, Smalls, he, he gives an account of what's happened. He explains the situation and why he's come and, and what he's come with. And he asks for a United States flag to fly from the planter and then surrenders the ship. He hands it over along with its cargo to the Union just like that. Now, Smalls has not only personally delivered four pieces of artillery from Coles Island on top of 100 kilos of ammo, he's much more importantly delivered a Confederate code book, which also included maps of where all the sea mines, all the the, the 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 underwater mines that have been deployed in the in the coastline and the rivers and that sort of stuff around South Carolina. So this is an important, this is an incredibly important piece of military technology or you know a military secret that the uh, the Union uh, the Union now has uh, their hands on. But let's not forget either about the most important. I mean, even more important than that, the 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 greatest achievement of Smalls just here like that. He has just secured not only his own freedom but also his families and the freedom of all the other crew members and their families too. So it's not a bad day's work for our mate Smalls, but he's not finished yet because after this whole thing, after the, the ship has been given, the planter has been given over to the Union, they've taken, you know, they've taken possession of all the stuff aboard it, whatever else they're like that, he sent off to Port Royal to debrief to, uh, to Flag Officer Dupont, who is a bloke who is in charge of this, uh, this whole Union blockade business. He's, uh, I mean, the Flag Officer is, uh, you know, again, it's, it's a difficult, it's like the, it's like the, it's a, the highest rank in the uh, in it's sort of its meaning has changed over the, throughout the history of the United States, but at this stage it's basically the highest rank amongst all of the the military per, or the navy personnel at this stage. So this but he's a he's a big top brass, he's a big knob here. So you know they're not mucking around; they're sending him to the to the the, the, the bloke who's you know really in charge of everything. And uh, after Smalls is sent off to have a chat with Dupont, he he reels off all this information about the Confederate situation in Charleston. Uh, you know, in included more than a couple of revelations for the Union forces. How lightly, how lightly guarded the uh, the town was in certain areas. How few troops they had protecting Charleston, and of course the location of all the mines of, of, of which he had helped to lay down, so he knew exactly where they were and and what they could do to uh, to remove them. And as a direct result of this information that Smalls gives to Dupont, the Union. 
was able to capture Coles Island and a bunch of artillery from the Confederates without even needing to fight, all thanks to Smalls. So it's a huge victory for the Union, and all it's all it's all thanks to our mate Robert Smalls. And because of this, DuPont actually wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Navy about Smalls, giving him a glowing reference. And overnight, Robert Smalls, he becomes a war hero. His exploits are widely reported in the media in the North, and he is lavished with praise. And on top of this, he and his crew were given prize money for the capture of the planter, which came to $1,500 each, nearly 40 grand unbelievable amount of money in, in that day and age for them to come, in, uh, come into, especially considering that, you know, a, a couple of days beforehand, they'd been slaves with, uh, you know, uh, hardly any money to their names at all. So it's, it's quite a turn up for the books here for, uh, for Smalls and his mates here. Um, now, what, what happens next to him here? Because he has a bit of a choice. Well, I was going to say, it's not really a choice for him to make. The choice actually gets made for him. But what happens here is he gets offered. People want him to come to New York and raise money for escaped slaves like him, you know, using his, his name, his publicity, whatever else, to raise money for people who were, were fleeing the oppression in the South there. But DuPont actually vetoes this idea. He says, nope, Smalls, sorry, mate, you're too valuable. You are too valuable to the war effort to let you go and, and let you do anything else like that. You know... Uh, uh, Charleston, like the back of your hand, you know where all these sea mines are. You're such a gifted pilot that we need you here to help fight the Confederates, right? DuPont, he needed them, him there to guide uh, ships through the minefields, which he did for a time, and, 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 and you know, help, again, fight this, uh, this battle that's going on in, in the Carolinas against the, the Confederates at sea there. So he does this for quite some time, but ultimately uh, the, politi- the politics of the situation do win out, and, and Smalls is, is called up to, uh, to help the efforts of, uh, of escaped slaves or African-Americans who were looking to uh, contribute to the war effort in, in different ways, uh, because what he does next, he, he heads to Washington, D.C. in 1862, and it's there that he fights an entirely different kind of battle to what we've heard about so far. Because Smalls and another a number of other supporters, they begin to lobby President Abraham Lincoln and his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, right, to let black soldiers fight for the Union. Previously, Lincoln had twice prevented his generals from mobilising black soldiers, but Small, uh, Smalls and another bloke, whose name was Mansfield French, worked very hard to persuade the president to change his mind, and it worked. Stanton ordered the creation of two battalions of black soldiers in Port Royal, and so uh, with this, the 1st and 2nd South Carolina Coloured Regiments were founded and all of this, once again, is thanks to the efforts of Robert Smalls. And and even then, you know, he goes off and, again, fights a political battle rather than a military one. But he is, even after this, he's not finished because he continues to sail for the Union. He's put in charge of a number of different ships and boats in the coming time, in the coming years, fighting, for the, fighting on behalf of the Union. And according to Smalls himself, he was part of at least 17 different battles or engagements, encounters throughout the Civil War. He also worked extensively with the Union in uh, removing a lot of those mines I was talking about uh, that he himself had helped to lay. He piloted the planter through the rivers and along the coast around Charleston. It was very appropriate for this because it had a very low berth. It was able to sail in shallower waters than, uh, than many of the other Union boats and ships. Um, he also piloted an ironclad, the USS Keokuk, which uh, represented the very bleeding edge of naval technology at the time, although that didn't go too well, admittedly. The Keokuk was part of an attack on Fort Sumter on the 7th, uh, on the 7th of April in 1863, and it was hit almost 100 times by Confederate guns uh, and actually sank the next day, despite the best efforts of our, uh, of our mate Robert's 
Smalls the pilot there. But overall, Smalls served with distinction. He piloted uh, you know, various Union ships throughout 1863, 1864. And there was one particular incident that stood out above uh, above all the others. You know, the many, many uh, adventures and, and missions he went on. There's one that, that really sticks in the memory here. On the 1st of December in 1863, Smalls was back in the planter. He was near Charleston when the ship was fired upon by Confederate artillery. Now, the captain, the bloke who's in charge of the ship, his name is James Nickerson. And he immediately craps his dax and he says, okay, well, we're surrendering. We're not, we're not going to fight. We're going to surrender the Confederates here. We're going to have to give them the planter. But Smalls, he knows what's going to happen to him if they surrender there to the, uh, to the Confederates. And so he refuses to give up. He refuses. He, re- he worries because he and the other black crew members, there's a good chance that they wouldn't be taken prisoners. They'd just be killed. They'd just be murdered on the spot just like that. They wouldn't be taken as prisoners of war. And as a result, Smalls, he takes command of the planter while Nickerson is hiding. This is not a joke. He goes and hid. He went and hid in the coal bunker, right? And so Smalls steps up and he gets ready to go and safely stale, sails the steamer away from the Confederates. Confederate guns back to Union controlled wars. Very, very dangerous thing to have done, but he did it safely. And for this, he was promoted to captain just like that. Nice one, Smalls, the old son. Saved not only himself, but you know the lives, definitely saved the lives of the other black crew members that he was in charge of there as well after his, uh, after his captain had, uh, again, run off crying like a little kid. And so uh, Smalls, he again, you know, he saves the day. And so you got to hand it to him. Anyway, Smalls continues to serve with uh, distinction until the end of the war in May 1865, and he was later discharged uh, in June. On the 11th of June 1865, he is finally, you know, he finally is able to uh, to leave uh, leave the, the 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 Union military after having, uh, you know, had quite a, a successful career. But even after this, he's not done yet sailing. He's, he's still very happy on the water there. So he continues to cut about in the planter. He's helping all of these new freedmen in the South by delivering supplies and foodstuffs to them directly after the war had ended. And and this sort of very much set the set the, the tone for what Smalls got up to after the war had finished. He was very much in the business of helping out, you know, fellow African-Americans in, in trying to uh, get a foothold into this new life they had as freedmen. Before we get into all that, though, I, I want to tell you one story. This is my, this is my absolute absolute favorite uh, thing about this whole story with Robert Smalls and and, and you know we'll, we'll talk about his, his quite illustrious career after this but I want to tell you what happened when when the war was finished you know he, he's sailing around in his boat he's, he's doing all this other stuff there like that but my absolute favorite part of the story is Robert Smalls is what he did when he headed back to his hometown of Beaufort in South Carolina after the war had finished you know what he did there it turns out that his former master Henry McKee hadn't been too keen on paying taxes when the Union Army took over the area in 1863. And as a result, the Union Army had seized his property, had seized you know, all of his land, his estate, whatever else there like that, and had forced him off it. And guess who the Union then sold it to? Oh yeah, Robert Smalls bought back his old master's house and moved into it just like that. Never mind bloody... Walter White at the vending machine. That's this has to be the sweetest, most frigid serving of revenge I've ever come across. Smalls also has his old mum come and live with him, you know, which she does until her death in the old house that they both used to be slaves in. Brilliant, right? And even better, McKee ended up taking Smalls to court in an attempt to get his old house back, but the court found in favour of Smalls and set a precedent that was then followed in other similar cases. Brilliant. How's that for some salt in the wood, mate? Get out of here, Henry McKee. 
It's not your bloody house anymore. Get out of town. Thank you very much. Anyway, this isn't the only piece of property that Smalls uh, invested in. I'll tell you this. Uh, you know, I talked to you about how he uh, was very, very determined to to help people after the war had finished, especially, you know, freedmen and, and other African-Americans who were trying to find their feet once the Civil War finished there in the South. And uh, one of the one of the buildings he, he bought, he bought a, a building um, in Beaumont itself, and he set up a school for African American kids there. And you know, interestingly as well, while these kids are going to the school learning to read and write, he himself was having to learn uh, to learn to read and write. Up to this point, he wasn't even literate, so he's not only helping other people, you know, get educated young kids. He's also educating himself, and you can see how seriously this bloke was was set on success uh, from from this point onwards. He invested a bunch of other stuff in and around Beaufort in the coming years. In 1866, he opened a shop that was specifically designed to help freedmen get the things that they needed now that they weren't slaves anymore. Uh, he helped to build a horse-drawn railway in 1870, and he set up a newspaper in 1872. And a lot of these. Uh, 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 efforts a lot of these were, were joint ventures with other um you know successful or wealthy african americans so this bloke was very very much leading the charge uh you know uh, for people like him in the uh, in in the post-war south there um but all of this all of the stuff that he was doing here all of this is just a prelude to his entrance into the world of politics because he joined the Republican Party and was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1868. He also appeared at the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention, where he helped to ensure free and compulsory education for all children in South Carolina. Smalls did not muck about in politics. More classic overachieving from this bloke, really. He worked on civil rights legislation. He moved uh, to the South Carolina Senate in 1870. And then by 1872, he was the vice president of the South Carolina Republican Party. Now, I want to take a bit of a detour at this point to talk about the Republican Party because, um, given the state of the U- of, you know of U.S. politics today, you might think it a little bit odd that a socially minded, progressive, forward thinking African American would hitch himself to the Republican Party because, obviously, today the Republican Party is. Uh, well, hardly the place to look for things like progress, civil rights, access to education, or even just things like basic equality, really. But as some listeners may know, things were wildly different 150 years ago. The Republican Party was the progressive left-leaning party that you know looked to regulate economic affairs and, and, and keep the government involved in social progress and through you know expanded federal powers and regulation, all that sort of stuff. And on the other hand, the Democrats were more... Um, what we could diplomatically and potentially, you know, quite misleadingly refer to as uh, a traditional party. Uh, They were very focused on uh, small government and states' rights. And at the time, the the Democrats sought to curtail the rights and protections that were extended to African-Americans after the war. And they wanted to keep the government as far away from what they considered uh, the private affairs of citizens, much like the Republicans do today. So how then is the situation almost exactly the opposite today in 2019. It has been a very long and slow process, but uh, you know, since the forward-thinking Republicans were led by Lincoln in the 1860s, between then and today, these parties have more or less switched positions on the political spectrum. Why? Why? There are two main reasons for this. I can, tell, I can try to explain why the situation was so vastly different then to how it is now. The two reasons. First one, Western expansion. 
The Republicans oversaw an enormous amount of federal spending on infrastructure and development in the new Western states in the back half of the 19th century, very much with this, you know, this this American principle of big government. The Republicans were all about this, diverting a lot of federal funds towards the development of these Western territories and states. The Democrats very quickly realised what was going on and realised that they would also have to try to appeal to these new states because with these new states were coming new voters. And so they moved away from the principles of small government, you know, low government spending, all that sort of stuff. They also started to chuck money at the Western states as fast as they could because they didn't want to miss out on all the potential voters that were going to be out living out in, uh, you know, in the, in the territory that the United States was expanding into. The Republicans helped, you know, that helped to at this stage had helped to fund railroads, banks, and other essential economic institutions, other big businesses, that sort of stuff. And the Democrats, realizing that there was an area for them to slide into, they instead tried to win over the quote-unquote common man, the farmers, the homesteaders, the people who weren't directly benefiting from the Republican spending on on big business, on railroads and banks and whatever else. And the the focus of the Democrats, uh, you know, on the common man, on the farmer, on the on the homesteader. This ties into the second reason: the relationship between politics and big business, and specifically the Republican Party and big and big business. The Republican Party today it's largely seen as the party for big business, and and you know I don't think that's an inaccurate thing to say, and that hasn't changed since the 1860s. So despite we've seen a reversal of these, uh, you know, of these parties' positions on, on the spectrum, the Republican Party has always been the party of big business. And the difference is, back then, big business also wanted big government. They needed federal spending, government-imposed tariffs. They needed a stable currency. They needed regulation that would help them establish themselves properly. And these were all things that only big government, only strong government regulation can provide. So the Republicans associated with big business as they were and still are, they were a big government party. Now, however, these things are set in stone. These businesses well and truly established. They don't need to rely on, on you know, government regulation in order to, order to prosper. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's actually in, in the interests uh, uh, for business now to, for the government to keep its hands off. Hence, the Republican is the party of not only big business, but now small government. That's the way that it's seen. So broadly speaking, the Republican Party, I think this is the best way to distill it here. The Republican Party hasn't moved. It hasn't shifted its core set of policies. Rather, the world has moved around it. And as the steady march of progress has pushed not only the Democrats, but largely speaking, the world further to the left, the Republican Party didn't move. So the Democrats who moved with the times went from being further to the right uh, than the Republicans and then more or less on par, more or less on par, then now further to the left as, as they have moved with the time. And there are a few clear markers that very helpfully delineate when and how the Democrats made this shift as well. In 1896, the People's Party collapsed. Uh, it was another political party. It collapsed uh, after the presidential election in 96. And a Democrat named Williams Jennings Bryan, right, he moved to attract all the pe- People's, Party voter, uh, People's Party voters. And these were broadly, they were progressives and they were a lot of farmers, a lot of agrarian in, uh, people interested in ag- agriculture and that sort of stuff. And he helped to shift the, the, the Democrat voter base and therefore the Democrat ideology further to the left as they picked up all of these people from, uh, from the People's Party. Then in 1912, Teddy Roosevelt, he split famously from the Republican Party. He'd, he'd already served two, two terms as president for the Republicans. Uh, but after he lost the, the Republican presidential nomination in 19, for the 1912 election, he, he split from them and, uh, and started instead the Progressive Party. 
Um, he had, as a Republican president, he had become more and more progressive. He'd moved with the times in the early 20th, early 20th century. Um, and so he eventually lost, eventually lost the backing of the Republicans, uh, who, again, as we've talked about, have, have steadfastly refused to move their position on the, on the political spectrum as it has moved around them. And so... Roosevelt now in charge of the Progressive Party, when it ultimately collapses in 1920, many voters then moved uh, to the increasingly increasingly progressive Democrats. So in this way, Roosevelt was a conduit that helped progressive people switch lanes. They were Republican voters that then followed Roosevelt to the Progressive Party and then left the Progressive Party. And instead of going back to the very conservative Republicans, they moved on to the Progressive Democrats by now. So this is another important milestone. But in 1932, this is probably the, the point at which things, the, the the, the switch was really flipped here because in 1932, the old Progressive Party's policies were brought back into the spotlight, brought back to the fore by Franklin Roosevelt. And this secured uh, Progressive Party voters once and for all, even the ones who hadn't abandoned the Republicans beforehand. And it pulled the Democrats further and further to the left now as they've picked up another, uh, you know, more progressive policies. And at this point now in the 30s, there is no doubt whatsoever that Democrats, the Democratic Party is the party of, of progress and social justice. The final tie that the Democrat Party cut with uh, its roots as the state's rights party of slaveholders was when the Democratic president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a Southerner himself, he had helped JFK win, you know, the by now conservative Southern states. He took up the fight for civil rights. And this resulted in the Southern African-American voters abandoning the Republican Party en masse. Remember, the Republican Party, it still bills itself as the party of Abraham Lincoln, the party that freed the slaves, uh, and and all of these African-Americans who had stuck by uh, the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, they they abandon. They they leave the Republican Party behind and they move instead uh, to the Democrats now that uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, is... uh, uh, is, is pushing forward uh, civil rights uh, reforms and, and all of that sort of thing. This obviously came at the cost of all the, uh, the the conservative Southern voters who had been with the Democrats for, you know, decades and decades and decades. But if all that did then was, you know, firm up the Democrats' position as the left-wing party as all of these people, you know, switched to the Republican Party, the, the very party that their ancestors had hated so much uh, back in the days of Robert Small. So overall, if you want to boil it right down, the reason the Republicans and the Democrats have switched political positions in the last 150 years is fundamentally because the Republicans haven't moved with the times whereas the Democrats have. The Republican policy platform was 150 years ago a progressive one, but as the world has moved on and, and, and progressed, the Republicans have not. And policies that were progressive a century and a half ago are now conservative. Meanwhile, the Democrats made political compromises to their policies in order to attract and keep new voters. They filled the spaces opened up by the immovable Republican Party as the course of world history pulled everyone further to the left. And that is how we explain going from a progressive, forward-thinking, high-profile African-American being a proud member of the Republican Party in the 19th century to another progressive, forward-thinking, high-profile African-American being sworn in as President of the United States by the Democrat Party only just a few short years ago. This I think, I mean, you know, we're well within the realm of politics rather than within history here, but I think it's an important thing to note. 
that when the Republican Party describe themselves as the party of Lincoln, they are doing something so fundamentally dishonest with their party's progressive role in politics 150 years ago that you absolutely should not fall for it. If anything, the Republican Party is so much further to the right these days that Lincoln would have nothing to do with them as the progressive president that he was back you know, in the 1860s. Anyway, I know that we're well in the realms, well, realms of politics here, but it is a very important thing to think about, you know, when when thinking of the historical context of statements like that. And it does, it is important to this story, of course, because it does explain why Robert Smalls was a member of the uh, the Republican Party, whereas you know Barack Obama just a few years ago was a Democrat. Anyway. There's no stopping Ahmad Smalls. Uh, He moved from the state to the federal legislature in 1874, as I said, and he's elected as a Republican congressman for uh, for, uh, South Carolina's 5th and 7th districts over the years. He serves serves as a congressman for for quite a number of years, and he splits his time between the 5th and 7th districts for for a range of reasons. We'll talk about some of them in just a second. He was in and out of office between uh, 1874 and 1887. You know, uh, at one point, his his electorate was gerrymandered to advantage his Democrat opponents. And, And by the way, I know we've had a lot of tangents today, but I'm going to do one more. I found out the origin of the term gerrymandering recently, and it's absolutely wild. It's named after a bloke called Elbridge Jerry, who was governor of Massachusetts. And this bloke, he redrew the electoral boundaries in Boston to suit his party. And on the map, these boundaries, these new boundaries, looked a little bit like a salamander. And therefore, the press published cartoons illustrating what had happened, and they labelled it as a gerrymander, right? Elbridge Jerry and a salamander. It's a portmanteau, a gerrymander. And the term has stuck around ever since. Isn't that excellent? Not, not the gerrymandering obviously that's not excellent but the, but the term itself that's you know it's pretty sweet anyway smalls he ends up being the second longest serving black member of the united states congress right through the mid mid uh, 20th century his record stands and he was extremely influential in civil rights reforms and of course the progress of, uh, of racial integration he he left congress in 1887 after losing a senate election and he instead uh, ended up as the collector of the port of beaufort a, p- a position that he held on and off from 1890 to, to 1913 uh, at which stage by the time he hangs up the boots as the collector of Port of Beaufort, he's well into his 70s. But a few interesting things happen. This story's not over yet because a few interesting things happen to him around the turn of the 20th century. I want to talk to you about these. He didn't end up with a military pension as it turned out that he actually had never been officially part of the military during the Civil War. He'd never actually been officially enlisted. He hadn't graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy, which meant that his promotion to captain was more honorary than anything else. And uh, while his commission as a second lieutenant in the Army had been uh, to ensure he'd been paid enough at the time that a ship's captain was entitled to, it later emerged that the, the commission wasn't legitimate due to the rules surrounding his race at the time. Smalls technically, technically speaking, had been a civilian throughout the entire American Civil War, which is quite quite incredible to think about. And this all came out when he sought the pension that he'd very obviously earned. And I'll tell you what, he had to fight pretty bloody hard for it. His attempts were blocked as late as 1897. People were blocking his attempts to receive a pension, apparently, again, because of his race, which is quite a disgraceful thing to think about, really. Ultimately, however... He does get a happy ending because in that in that same year he is granted in 1897 he's granted a full navy captain's pension and uh, you know obviously well and truly earned and so you know justice is served there and and further in 1900 he received another payment from the government thirty five hundred dollars 
after it emerged that the prize money that he'd received for the capture of the planter had been a ridiculous lowball. Before I was talking about how much money this was, it actually emerged that the planter was grossly undervalued when it was uh, surrendered by Smalls and the rest of the crew. Um, and so uh, Smalls and the rest of the crew members that were still around, they received, uh, you know, the rest of the money that was uh, that was owed to them after you know, a, a fair a fair bit of time, but still better late than never, and they did get the money that was owed to them. So, I mean, it, it's nice to think that Smalls did get what he deserved, but there, of course, were many people at the time who didn't, and it's quite incredible to think that, you know, even as an old bloke, even as a war hero and a high-profile congressman and public servant, Smalls was still battling through a quagmire of racial prejudice last century, the beginning of the 20th century. But, you know, all of that aside... You can't claim that he didn't live a full and extremely rewarding life, and he helped to set the world on course for a better future with his actions. Robert Smalls, nicking a Confederate gunboat and sailing to freedom, was you know it was hardly a turning point in world history, but nonetheless, in doing so, Smalls did all that you can ever really hope to do with your life. He made the world a better place. Robert Smalls died in 1915 at the age of 75, and he was buried in a family plot in Beaufort. And his memorial, which is still there today, it bears the words that he once spoke in the Carolina House, uh, the South Carolina House of Representatives. And this is what he said. <clears throat> My race needs no special defence, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the quite remarkable story of Robert Smalls, who went uh, from being born in slavery to uh, becoming a war hero, and then, of course, a a high-profile congressman who, as I said, definitely made the world a better. We were lucky to have him. We were lucky to have him. He definitely made the world uh, a better place, uh, you know, during his time on this earth. Anyway, that is that for another week of Half-Assed History. Thanks so much for hanging out with me this week. It's great to have your company, of course, as it is every week. Um, if you want to jump on the website, halfassedhistory.net, you'll find old episodes and links there to uh, subscribe. You can also get in touch with me. Uh, there's a little contact form there. Send me through an email with uh, ideas or feedback. I'm always happy to get ideas for uh, um, uh, new topics and that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm trying to remember how I came across Robert Smalls. It may have been a listener that sent the idea in. I'm not sure if it was or not. So if it was, I'm very, very sorry uh, that I didn't give you a shout out. Send me an email and I'll make sure to uh, uh, to you know give you the publicity you so richly deserve. Um, but uh, you know, uh, thank you, thank you to people who are listening to the show. Thank you to people who are sending in emails, and thank you, very, very special thank you to all the members uh, I have on Patreon who are uh, still chucking me money hand over fist. I've, I've had more signups in the last couple of weeks than, than ever before, and and it just it is so humbling to have people support me in this way. So thank you so very, very much. Anyway, we're going to close out the show. That's enough of that boring nonsense. Going to close out the show with a question post on Reddit, as usual. Um, uh, a, a Reddit historian. Redstone Rodent has a, an absolute corker of a question for us here. We were talking a little bit about the, uh, you know, the, the American Civil War, and uh, Redstone Rodent has a question relating to that. Uh, they want to know, why were so many Civil War battles fought in national parks? <laughs> <laughs>